Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. Then he said to his young, young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went, both of them went together and and while they were going, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, here I am, my son. Uh, behold, the, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, Here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram And offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of God. This is, uh, it's, it's a master stroke of storytelling. Because what we have is all of the drama and the the tension of this moment, the 
the author of the story has effectively been able to weave it together in, in a mere 14 verses, if you, if you were counting. Many have commented on this and said this is like the greatest narrative in all ancient literature. And many others have said that it's the most disturbing <laughs> narrative in, in at least all of the Bible. And of course, they're both right. We have here something that is brilliant and something that is at the same time horrific. Uh, it, it's, it raises many questions. One of the, the most famous attempts to grapple with the questions is, is, was written a book by, by Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling, if you have read that before. In Fear and Trembling, Kierkegaard imagines a preacher standing up in this pulpit one Sunday and saying, you must obey God no matter what is the command that he gives you, no matter how outrageous he is the Lord, and you are to obey. Well, later that day, one of the congregants in the church goes home and kills his son. So the next Sunday, it rolls around, and the preacher stands back up in the pulpit again, and he rails, what kind of a monster of a father would, would do this to, would do such and such thing to his son. And Kierkegaard's point is that on a strictly ethical level, this, the story doesn't work. Like, why is it that we would commend Abraham as this hero of the faith, but we would condemn a man who does something similar? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's perplexing. And, and some people say, actually, that Abraham failed the test. He should have argued back with the Lord. He should have refused to obey this outrageously, morally reprehensible command. What I'd like you to do, just to start out then, is to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who is not a Christian, somebody is not religious, a secular person, and just see what this story sounds like to them. Because when they read this, and they, they know... They know that the three great Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all three set this story as the centerpiece of their religious worldview. And for a secular person, they read it and they say, yeah, this is what's wrong with the world. Religious fanaticism. I mean, isn't this the type of story that breeds the the religious fanatics that are are troubling the world today? It, It definitely brings out a lot of concerns. What I hope to show you in the sermon today is that while those things bother us, those were not the things that were bothering Father Abraham. He was definitely troubled by what takes place in Genesis chapter 22, but he, his, he was troubled by some things altogether different than what we, um, what we find here. So let's talk about that. Uh, child sacrifice was, was basically the norm in that day. I guess that's how, would, how I would start. Child sacrifice was the norm. Archaeologists who have gone in and excavated Canaanite towns and villages, civilizations, have regularly on their digs discovered the skeletons of little children under the foundation stones of the houses. The Canaanites didn't practice child sacrifice to the extent that the Incas and the Aztecs did, but you know, nevertheless, it was a very common 
practice. So when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, Abraham was, was not thinking, oh, that's murder. Oh, no. He, he, he was thinking, ah, I wish that you were different than them. I, I thought that you were different. It troubled him that God wasn't different than the, the, the gods of, of that place. But, but he wasn't, it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility that God would ask for a sacrifice. Because Abraham, the Bible hadn't been written at this time. He was still learning new things about Yahweh. He didn't know everything there was to know about God. And he just assumed that, well, you know, that's how things work with deities and all. But, so he wasn't shocked by the command to sacrifice a son. What, what did shock him, what was unthinkable to Abraham, was the command to sacrifice this son, Isaac. If, if you've been along for the sermon series so far, you know that he had been waiting decades for this son. All of his hopes and aspirations were tied up in, in this Isaac, as they, uh, as they would call him. And all of the promises that God had made to him in the covenant, promises of, of numerous physical and spiritual family and promises of, of a great heritage and a place for his great-great-great-grandchildren to live and the promises that God was going to bless all the nations, all of that was, was contingent upon this one son. And uh, you, you get a feel for the pain of what, what it meant for God to ask this in verse 2, if you want to look there with me, where it says, verse 2, take your son, your only son. You kind of imagine a pause in between each of these. Take your son, pause. Your only son, pause. The son that you love, pause. Isaac. You can almost imagine Abraham saying, what about him, Ishmael? Not Isaac, why not him? Interesting that the ancient rabbis actually invented a, a comical dialogue that happened to take place between God and, and Abraham. It, it, I'll see if I can do it. It goes something like this. God says to Abraham, uh, I want your son. And Abraham says, well, uh, <laughs> I have two sons. You want the son? Uh, what about this one? <laughs> no, I, I want your only son. Well, uh, is this, one, this one's the only son of his mother, and this one's the only son of his mother. Okay, I want the son that you love. <laughs> I love them both very much. Isaac, I want Isaac. My hearing is very bad. Did you say Ishmael? <laughs> so what you get is this comical dialogue as he's trying to evade God because he just can't imagine, wrap his mind around sacrificing him. And one of the things I've tried to do throughout the sermon series is look at Abraham as a figure and how each of the three great Abrahamic faiths interpret him what meaning they make of the narratives. Did you know that, I think it's in the Quran, that on three occasions, three times, the devil tempts Abraham and tries to keep him from 
obeying this command. And I am, I don't know this to be a fact, I am told that during the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, during Hajj, as your Muslim pilgrims, uh, on one of the days of that, that ceremony, they will walk up long ramps, and they will take in their hand some pebbles, and they will throw these pebbles at the base of three very large stone columns, colonnades, 50 foot high. They'll throw the pebbles at the, at the base of these, which represent the devil and the three times that he tempted Abraham to disobey. So what you get, again, in, in Islam, I mean, to be a Muslim is to surrender. And what we have in Abraham is a man who surrenders his will entirely to the will of God. No matter how preposterous or outrageous is the command that God makes to him, here is one who's willing to do whatever it takes. And so you can see then why Abraham is the, the true Muslim. And the man, who, the man who surrenders his will, that's the, the man that, that they admire. But that's not the point of the story, is it? The point of the story is that I am not like all those other gods. I'm not like Molech. I'm not like Chemosh. I'm not like all of the other gods of the Canaanites who expect you to sacrifice your children on their behalf. Instead of this being a passage uh, promoting child sacrifice, this is a dramatic enactment of putting an end to centuries and centuries worth of child sacrifice. Now, we look at it as modern people and uh, are disturbed and think, well, why did God not do that more directly? Why, didn't, why did God do it in such a, a, a messy fashion like this? Well, if I could give, give you an illustration to kind of answer that objection... What if you've got a, a fight between a couple of kids down on the playground, down the hill here, a big uh, you know, brawl taking place. The teacher is standing at a distance, and he or she witnesses this. They could call out, boys, you better stop fighting. And that might work. But if it's a really big fight, if it's a Playground riot is taking place. Yelling from a distance is not enough. What's going to happen is the teacher has to walk down in there. And as they wade into the fight in between the combatants, if you're an outside observer for just a moment, for, for just a moment, it may seem like the teacher is himself participating in the fight. But you know that's not the case. They're there to end the fight. They're there to, to bring peace. They're, they're there to, to, to end it all. They, they say that if you wrestle with the pigs, you're going to get muddy, but sometimes uh, that's what it takes to tame a wild boar. <laughs> and that's what's happening here. Our God is a very dramatic God, if you haven't noticed, and he is not ashamed to muddy himself and come down and to introduce himself into the story. It may seem like it sullies his reputation for a little while until you realize, no, he's there to put an end to it. Okay, look with me if you take your bulletin at verses 1 and 12. That's where I want to go next. 
1. It says there in 1 that God was testing Abraham. Now, Abraham didn't know that God was testing him, but he was. When we are given an exam by someone, they put, put us to a test. Uh, they're trying to figure out something about us. Like, how competent are you at driving a motorized vehicle? Uh, how much time did you spend studying your, your chemistry notes? Uh, how much time did you, did you do your, your algebra assignment? He's, they're trying to figure out something about us. Well, God's trying to figure out something about Abraham. And he figures this out in verse 12, where he says, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Which brings up, I think, another interesting question. We got... We get a lot of good questions in this passage. And this question is, didn't God already know that? Isn't part of the definition of being God that you know all things, which includes knowing all the things that are in an individual's heart? Wouldn't God already know that? Why would he have to put him to the test to find that out? Well, if you're a frequent reader of the Bible, you know that you come across this rather Rather often, you have this, this, this thought that, that God is, a, is apparently ignorant in some ways, and, and he needs to learn something new. What gives? On one hand, the Bible teaches that God is a thousand percent omniscient. He knows everything forwards and backwards. He knows, he knows all things. On the other hand, the Bible teaches, it actually teaches, that God learns new things. I mean, how can that be? Is that a contradiction? No, it's a deep mystery that is worth us wading into. God learns new things. So if you think of it in, in these terms, at 1135, the world as it is at 1135 is different than the world as it was at 1134. The world a minute prior is, is different than, and there's a sense that we are entering here into the frailty of human language. But there's a sense that he experiences the newness of the new event. Um, and so, uh, his knowledge of new events is, is somehow somewhat analogous to our knowledge of new events. And that's because that he, he chooses to be a character and actor with us in the story. There's two theological words that are used to describe this. His transcendence, he transcends time and space. He's above it all, he knows it all. But also his eminence, that he is with, with us in time and space. As in, he's present with us. Uh, so the God who knows all things, if we focus on that as perfectly right, is the same God who is learning new things. And what I find is that my type of Christianity and your type of Christianity tends to focus on the one and underemphasize the other. The place where I see it happening the most is in our prayers. I mean, how many times have you, have you thought, well, why bother to tell God about this event because he already knows? <laughs> Or why bother to ask God to change this because he's already ordained the beginning from the end? When was the last time that you said to God, God, did you see that? God, did you hear that? Did you know that? 
When was the last time that you described a new event to him? God, did, did you hear what she just said? I think I, what I thought I heard her say was some words, she was pretty full of shame. And I thought I heard a person who is not living out of their identity in Christ and doesn't really understand the gospel. Did you, did you hear that? This is something new that just happened, and I want to describe it to you. So before I ever ask you to fix it or, or ever ask you to change the situation, I want to, to describe it to you so that you will know. Apparently, the God who knows all things still wants to know more, more about us, more about circumstances. So I tell you what, as I started meditating on this this week, it, I felt like I was tapping into something revolutionary for my prayers. Uh, if you're like me, I'm one of those people that really struggle with figuring out what to say to God. I, and my, my prayer life often immediately turns to petitionary requests. I mean, I've got my grocery list of askings. And I, I go there so quickly. But what I discovered here is, what about before I described, ask him to change her heart, describe to him what I thought I just heard from her heart. Tell him that. Tell him what I think I, I just know and ask him if he knows. I don't, I, I hope that's helpful. Um, it's been really good for me. If you disagree with it, if you think, think I'm out to lunch, well, I'm kind of tr- trafficking here in the words of my favorite theologian, probably my favorite theologian, John Frame, who advocates something similar to this. So if you've got a bone to pick, we can, we can pick it together with, with John Frame. But let's go back to the story, because I think that may be a little tangent to the main point of the story Again, it's a, it's a masterfully told story. And you, you get, a, uh, it draws you in to the drama, the, the dialogue, the short dialogue that takes place between Abraham and Isaac. It has a, a note of realism to it. And then, I really like in verse, oh, what is it, verse... I like it when the camera goes into slow motion. I, I can't even find it. Verse 9, where everything slows down in the story. We have Abraham building the altar. And then cut scene. Abraham arranging the wood. It's, it's all slow. Abraham binding the sun. Abraham uh, reaching out and getting the knife. Abraham clutching the knife. Abraham extending the knife. And you can almost imagine a Jewish family, a Jewish father who's telling the story to their kids. And their kids, his kids are on the edge of their seats because this is a cliffhanger. What is going to happen? He's stretching the knife. Uh, it's, It's great. And yet, did you notice the story never tells us what Abraham is feeling? Never tells us. Is he happy? Is he sad? Is he terrified? It never does any psychological profiling of, of Abraham. All it does is kind of give us hints as to what is happening in his, in his mind. So I think we've got to follow those, those crumbs, uh, the trail of the crumbs, the hints that he provides us. Verse 5. Verse 5, hint number 1. While you stay with the donkeys, servants, my boy and I, we're going to go over there. We're going to worship. And we, we will return to you. Yeah, 
he could have been lying. He, he might not have wanted to, to freak Isaac out or the freak. The, but we will return to you. And then the other hint is in verse 7. Abba, where, where is the lamb? Abba, where, where is the lamb for the burn? God will provide for himself the, the lamb, my, my son. It's an, I think this, he has amazing confidence in the promises of God. If it comes to this, if it gets to the point where I have to do the unthinkable and sacrifice the promised son, Abraham has a sense that God is going to make it, it's going to turn out all right. It's going to be okay. How can it possibly be okay if you kill your son? Well, he'll raise him from the dead. Like that's, where the, that's what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews eleven nineteen says that the reason Abraham could go through all of it was because he reasoned that God was the God who could raise his son from, from the dead. So we step back and we say, Abraham is a resurrection hero in that he believed the resurrection thousands of years prior to it ever being popular to believe in the, in the resurrection. He's a resurrection hero. He is... Uh, we, we do need to model our faith on his at this point. When you are dealing with the loss of that which is the most precious to you, when you're dealing with the, the loss, the, the potential death or the death of a loved one, if you have to undergo the greatest parental horror in the world, we know, is to have to bury your own child You've seen that happen before. You know how like families come apart at the seams when they have to when there's the untimely death of a child and you have to bury you have to bury your own child. When that happens, the only thing that will keep you sane is a is a firm conviction and hope in the resurrection of the dead. Abraham, resurrection hero. Jewish interpreters would beg to differ. Very interesting. When you read the Jewish history of interpretation, Abraham turns out not to be the hero of Genesis 22. Universally, the title they used for this section is, they call it, do you know, the binding of Isaac. Because the hero of the story, according to, to Jewish interpreters, is not Abraham, but it's principally Isaac. And the reason they do so, it hinges on this idea. Well, it hinges on something that's clearly there, which is we don't know how old Isaac is. Never in the story are we told his, his age. So if you actually do the age calculations, you, d- you discover that Isaac could be anywhere from like age 8 to age 35. It's a very large spread. Now, Christian interpreters have always tended towards the younger side of the scale. Jewish interpreters, no. They, they always will say, Isaac was late 20s. Isaac was early to mid-30s. Because, this is the, the kicker, the older that Isaac is, the more of a hero he becomes. Abraham was 125 years old at this time. If, Abraham, if Isaac didn't want this to happen, 
It would never would have happened. Isaac was a willing victim. And it, it, one of the rabbis actually records a, a speech that Isaac gives here. He, short speech, Father, I raise no objection to the carrying out of your words, and I willingly let myself be bound on top of the altar, and, and thus do I stretch out my neck under the knife. All of the pictures of Jewish pictures of Genesis 22 are of Isaac, you know, putting his arms out. The, the binding of himself was, is, a, is basically it. And he's climbing up onto the, to the altar. Um, he lifts himself onto the stone. And, uh, and so he's the, he's the hero. So Abraham, the resurrection hero. Isaac, the self-sacrificial, willing victim hero. Which one is it? Which one is it? Well, according to the, <laughs> to the author of the, the narrative, it's neither. If you look at verse 14, we, there in verse 14, we see who's the hero of the story. That place, the place, the mountain that it took place on, it, it was not the place that Abraham finally did it right. <laughs> they didn't name it that. They didn't name it the place where even Abraham first believed in the resurrection. It's not the hill on which Isaac was bound. It is the mount on which the Lord provides. Because the Lord is always the hero of every story. On the mount of the Lord, he shall provide. You, uh, have you ever heard the sounding of the shofar? You have the, the Jewish trumpet. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Something like that. You know, it's made out of a ram's horn. They sound it every Rosh Hashanah, every Jewish New Year. Um, it has rich, symbolic meaning in Judaism. And, and here's why. Because, because there was a ram with a ram's horn. Apparently a fully grown animal. At least it had grown, it was old enough to have grown horns large enough to have been captured in, in a thorn bush in a, in a thicket. And there it is. The Lord provides a ram. The only problem with that is Abraham didn't say God will provide a ram. Abraham said God will provide a lamb. A ram? Or a lamb. It makes all the difference in the universe. We as Christians read the words of Abraham there and we say, yes, that is it. You are a prophet. You have spoken far better than you ever could have possibly imagined because, because that is God's intention to provide a lamb. And Mount Moriah it ends up being the location on which Solomon's temple is eventually built. Mount Moriah is the same as Mount Zion, the highest point in the city of Jerusalem, the location of Solomon's temple, the location of Herod's temple, the location where the, the great curtain of that temple was torn in two on Good Friday. So for us, this story is so full of rich, symbolic meaning. 
You probably already guessed a lot of it, even as I read through it, but I want to I I give you the rest that you didn't into it already. Um, here, Isaac came into the world through a miraculous birth. He was born to a barren woman who there's no way that her womb should have been able to bear children. People said that, that that's impossible. Well, Jesus came into the world through a miraculous birth, born into a womb, a womb that shouldn't possibly be able to do this. And people today still say, At, you know, that's impossible. Isaac was his father's chosen son, beloved son, promised son, cherished son, in his own words, his only son in, in many respects. And Jesus was his father's Promised son, beloved son, only begotten son, the, the, the one in whom on the banks of the Jordan River, the, the son in whom I am so well pleased. For three days, Abraham traveled with Isaac toward Mount Moriah, knowing that his son would face a bitter end. A bitter end. Even if Abraham believed in the resurrection, as I maintain that he does, That doesn't take away the pain of death, does it? I believe in the resurrection. That doesn't mean that I'm skipping and dancing at funerals. Because even a belief in the resurrection does not take away the horror and the pain of death for a parent. For three days, Abraham traveled with Isaac to Mount Moriah. For three years, our Heavenly Father traveled with Jesus to Mount Moriah, knowing what would await him. Did you catch the reference to the wood? Isaac has wood strapped to his back, and he, under the the heavy weight of the wood, walks up the hill. Jesus had a wooden crossbeam strapped to his lacerated back, who, who tried to the best of his weakened strength to carry it up the hill until he could do so no longer and Simon the Cyrene took it, took it for him. No matter how, what age Isaac was, if he was in his early teens or he was mid-30s, Isaac was a willing victim. Even if he was age 10, he still could have outrun a 125-year-old man and he could have gotten away if he wanted to. He was a willing Victim. He had every opportunity to run away. Jesus had every opportunity, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. You would think that when you're sweating drops of blood, that is, is plenty of incentive to run away. Isaac was bound, it says, the binding of, of Isaac. It's interesting because in the later temple ceremony, when you have a burnt offering, they sometimes call it a Holocaust offering. So I think that's the sort of the technical term because of the smoke that comes up from the burnt offering. You would never tie up a burnt offering. It was, it was never done. It was never necessary. But this is a burnt offering that has to be tied. And Isaac is tied down. Is he tied down to, the, to an altar, to the altar? Well, Jesus Christ was tied down to an altar. And it's not the table that is sitting in front of us. It's an altar we call the cross. Then finally, 
Finally, um, God loves cliffhangers. I said that earlier. And we know that from, from our lives, right? Like how many times God has waited to the very last minute and, until he provides the rent check that is due or, or the, the, the means of transportation that we desperately... How often he waits to just the very last minute and he makes us sweat it out. He makes Abraham sweat it out until this voice from heaven cries, do not lay, do not lay your hand on that boy. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, at the very last minute, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's sweating. It's, it's at the very end. What does heaven say? In response, heaven is silent. So why was the sacrifice? Why was the sacrifice of a lamb necessary? I'm just not going to go into all the justification of that right now. It suffice to say, kind of the essence of it is that you and I think differently about sin than God does. He's, He's much more incensed by our sin. Like we... Our attitude is almost, if we're being honest, like, God, what is the big deal? You're totally overreacting. Like, take a chill pill. This is, <laughs> we, we do. We expect God to, like, shouldn't he just have a dismissive wave of the hand and, and be gone with it? Uh, no, he's, he's far more um, disturbed by, by sin than, than we are. And, and he takes it far more seriously than we do. And he's, he's so much more just than we could ever, ever imagine. He expects that, that justice shall be done and that whatever moral debts that we accrue, those debts must be paid. Either we will pay those debts, we will pay the debt to Lady Justice, or, or maybe, just maybe, a substitute could be found to pay that in our place. Is it possible? Could it just be that, a, that a, a lamb, a worthy sacrifice, could it be that there would happen a Romans 8.32, that God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all? Is that possible? Is John 3.16 a fairy tale that he lo- so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Could a sacrifice pay in my place? I was really struck by this fact as I was listening to a, a Charles Garland sermon this week of um, how frustrating, and frustrating is probably not the right word, but how um, angering it must be for God the Father to watch other human beings dismiss his son Jesus Christ in unbelief. Like how frustrating that if, if Abraham and Isaac gives us something into the window, into the anguish of God and all that it took, all that it took for us to have this kind of sacrifice and for people to just be like, Jesus, whatever, I don't, I don't care. Like how frustrating do you think that must be? How galling, how damning. Do you think that he takes it Take, thinks of it as a light thing when, when people use Jesus' name in vain, when they use Jesus' name as an as a, a expletive. 
when something goes wrong in, in their life. You think he's cool with that, with, with his son? Do you think that um, when people make the, the, the most popular theological statement of our day, which is basically all religions are the same, everybody's finding God in their own way, everybody's on the same mountaintop, so they're, they're different pathways, they're all going up. Do you think that God is like, yeah, sure. Um, after he went to all that trouble to take his son to the mountaintop, after he and his son went through Gethsemane together, or we should say apart, I guess what it comes down to is that the simple fact is what you and I think about Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in our lives. And what we need to realize is that here's what God's doing. It's not a dramatic gesture of love giving you something that you don't need. It's not like God saying, I love you. Oh, I love you. I love you. I'll, I'll donate a kidney for you. In sacrificing his, his son, he's, he's providing that which is your deepest and greatest need. Um, he's addre- addressing our deepest need, whether we acknowledge it or not. Our deepest need is to have a substitute rather than ourselves bear the wrath of God in our place. And if you didn't know that was your deepest need, that's <laughs> why that Jesus Christ is the true and better Isaac. When, when God said to Abraham, now I know, now I really know that you love me because you did not withhold your son. Um, Jesus Christ is the true and better Isaac. And now um, y- you need to look at God and say, now I know, I, I truly know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, the son that you love. You did not withhold him. From me.